canning will only last for a short time. You may get a couple of years out of it, four or five years out of it, maybe if you're lucky. But anything beyond that, the food is going to start to go bad on you because you don't have all of the oxygen out of there. Welcome to part two of this episode of the LDS Life Podcast with Steve Manson. I'm your host, Kevin Williams, the Blind Montana Man. On part two of this episode of the LDS Life Podcast, Steve Manson and I discussed why it is important to both freeze-dry and can food. We also discussed canning food in a vacuum pack, and liquid nitrogen. We also discussed how to store water long term, since, as you know, if you have a bottle of water sitting around for a long time, it does taste rather disgusting. I hope you enjoyed part two of this episode of the LDS Live podcast. If you want to get a hold of me, please do so. My email address is kevinw at ldslifepodcast.com. That's Kevin W. at LDSLifePodcast.com. You can also get a hold of me on Facebook at LDS Life Podcast. Thank you very much. Okay, so let's just get down to food storage one-on-one here because, unfortunately, okay. there's a lot of people listening to this podcast who don't know how to store food, and, unfortunately, I am one of them. But even more, the loss of canning. There, there's a lost art of canning. I'm 41 years old. Uh-huh. Most people my age do not know a thing about canning. Now, I know a little bit because my mother used to can, so I don't want to sound insulting here, but we've got to get down to basics. What is the difference between freeze drying and canning? And again, I'm sorry for those that know, but we just got to get down to the basics here because I'm yeah. sure there's millennials out there listening. Well, and, and canning, um, it's just a different, it's a different process altogether. And uh, canning, like the, uh, the jam that we're canning, it requires a tremendous amount of heat. Um, and the jars need a tremendous amount of uh, a heat to make sure they're sterilized. Uh, you're working with extremely hot, especially like the, the peach jam that we're doing. The peach jam is, is very hot. Um, and it puts into the jar and uh, through the heat process, it seals. Uh, the difference is that the canning does not remove all of the oxygen from the container. And so beans, you're not, oh, I didn't know that. All okay. of the oxygen. Yeah, no, you still, you still end up with a little bit of space in there. There's still some oxygen in there. And because of that canning will only last for a short time. You may get a couple of years out of it, four or five years out of it, maybe if you're lucky, but anything beyond oh. that, the food is going to start to go bad on you because you don't have all of the oxygen out of there. You compare that to say freeze drying, and just to give you an example, this is something that, that we do. Um, we find something like uh, a chili. We'll find a good chili that's on sale. And uh, I'll buy several cases of it, knowing that there's no way I'm going to be able to eat all that chili prior to its expiration date. So I'll eat it as I, as I want to. And as it gets close to the expiration date, I take that chili and dump it into my freeze dryer and I freeze dry it so that I don't lose it. And it uh, you dump the cans onto the trays, you put the tray into the freeze dryer and the freeze dryer is about the size of a small refrigerator. And it comes with a, a pump that sits separately to the side of it. You put it in there and you fire the process up and 24 to 30 hours later, what you remove from the freeze dryer is completely dry. There is no moisture to it. And so because there is no moisture to it, when you dump it into the Mylar bags, and take as much of the moisture as much of the air out of there as you can, and you throw in an oxygen absorber into that mylar bag as well. 
Once you seal that up, that oxygen absorber removes all the oxygen from inside there. There is no moisture in it because it's completely freeze dried. It's powder. There is nothing to go bad. Um, okay. And then, you, and then when you want to reconstitute it, all you're going to do is rehydrate it and add water back to it. And similar to your so, hamburger, you just put it in a, a can or a container for 20 minutes or something and put it underneath yeah. the hot water tap, correct? Yeah, you just, you just fire up some hot water into a, I just use a Tupperware bowl. I put some hot water in a Tupperware bowl and, and just drop my hamburger patty in there and just let it sit for 20 minutes. And it's good to go. Now, um, chili is a different, a different story. We have it measured out is to, you know, and this is where the food scale comes in, is how many, how many ounces of freeze-dried chili to how much water basically turns it back into chili. Um, and that's just something that you have to play with to see what you like, mm -hmm. you know, how, how thick or how thin do you want your chili to be? Uh, and that just comes over time. Um, another, another thing too, eggs, uh, eggs are, uh, I've got a, a coworker whose family has chickens and she sells her eggs to the employees there at the, at the care center and whatever she has left over, I take them. Um, you know, pay her form, whether it may be two, two cartons one week, it may be five the next. And we bring those home and I can put 18 eggs on a tray and I can freeze dry them down to a powder. And two tablespoons of powdered egg and two tablespoons of water is the same as a whole egg if I'm doing, if I'm baking a cake or making pancakes or anything else that you would use an egg for, I can use that, that powdered egg uh, with two tablespoons and two tablespoons of water to create an egg. And it cooks up just fine. And I, again, it goes in a Mylar bag with an oxygen absorber. We seal it and it can sit on my shelf at room temperature 20 years. Interesting. Now, why would you want to can food rather than freeze drying it? Because it sounds like freeze drying it well, that's true. It lasts 25 years, like you said earlier in this podcast. Why would you can anything then? For example, you're canning jam, so why wouldn't you freeze dry it? Well, you can you can freeze dry it. The freeze drying takes a lot longer um, as far as volume goes. You know, we, we produce tonight um, probably 40 or 45 quarts of, uh, well, it's not quarts, they're pints, uh, pints of, of peach jam. In order for me to freeze dry that many peaches, um, it would take me close to a week for what I can do in, in one night. And we give some away. We basically can the things that we know we can eat within the next year or two. We try to freeze dry the things that we're looking for long-term storage for. Now, don't get me wrong. I freeze dry peaches as well. Yeah. I just don't freeze dry as many because it's... Um, it just is a, a very time consuming process and you've got to keep, you know, the freeze dryer really to, to, to offset the cost of one, you know, you pretty much got to keep the thing running uh, a lot. Freeze dryers are, are, you know, depending on your financial circumstances, um, you know, a freeze dryer with a good pump on it is going to run you about $4,500. With your electric bill or no, just, no oh. the cost of the initial cost of buying the unit. Oh, um, Okay. Doing a batch of food will run you about three dollars, three to four dollars to in my market for what I pay for electricity. It runs oh, okay. me about three to four dollars to run a batch of food. Um, but you know, so the point is that the the canning 
is a lot faster. You can do a lot more of it in a short time period. And things like peaches are very time sensitive. I mean, when they're ready to drop off the tree, you've only got a certain amount of time to get the, to get them processed or you're going to lose them. Yes. And so I would have to have a tremendous more than just one freeze dryer in order to freeze dry all my peaches. I just simply don't have the enough equipment. I have one freeze dryer. And now, so by the way, uh, freeze drying. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Just canning is an option to process more food in a shorter time period. I wonder if that's why Glenn Beck recommended canning instead of freeze drying for ways to survive tough times. Cause he didn't mention anything about freeze drying. This is back in 2012 on one of his old, old TV shows. It was one of his mm-hmm. first shows when he was on the blaze, I guess way back then when it was GBTV. Right. Well, I don't know that freeze drying really has been something that's been available to the general public till here in the last, well, I don't know how many years. I think the commercial freeze dryers are huge and awfully expensive and not really uh, feasible for a homeowner to own one of these. You know, they've got it down uh, to where it's the size of a small refrigerator and a pump that sits alongside it. Uh, you know, so they've, they've definitely made it more user-friendly, whereas maybe back then, I don't know that, uh, you know, residential-type freeze dryers were even a thing back then. Well, I, I was just going to say, freeze-dry food is nothing new. I remember my first encounter with freeze-dried food was back in 1990. Uh, would have been, I think, sometime in mid-June of 1990. I was actually in Orlando, Florida. And went to the Kennedy Space Center, and I bought space ice cream. I didn't realize it was freeze-dried until decades later. We just called it space ice cream, but it was freeze-dried ice cream. And I'm sure NASA probably freeze-dried a whole bunch of other food. This is nothing new. But I think uh, over the last, I don't know, 12, 13 years, it's been talked about thanks to some advertising on the radio and such. Yeah, and it needed somebody to produce a machine that was feasible for the average homeowner to own one. You know, it was kind of like back in the 50s with an IBM computer. Yeah, they were out there, but you needed a garage-sized space to have one. Yeah. You know, and as, as time has, has gone forward and technology has gone forward, I think these companies are producing things that are a little bit more feasible for the average homeowner to own. And I've done ice cream. I've done... I've done just about everything under the sun you can think of in my freeze dryer just to see how it came out. And ice cream, one that does very well. Um, Freeze-dried candy is very popular. And uh, my grandsons, I have to ship them a box about once a month because they've got to have their (laughs) freeze-dried Skittles. Oh, my. That's funny. I'd I'd like you to ship me some freeze-dried cookie dough ice cream. How about you buy some Tillamook cookie dough ice cream and ship it to me freeze-dried? That'd be an interesting taste. Okay, Tillamook. I'm making notes here. Cookie <laughs> dough, ice cream. Okay, you got a deal. All right. Um, yeah, we'll I'll talk about it off the podcast. Um, so let's uh, talk about because I have actually heard, and I know somebody who actually would eat dinner, and then he would vacuum pack his leftover dinner and put it in the fridge. Now, he put, no, he put it in the fridge. He had no chemicals or anything like that. He just right. put it in a vacuum pack, and I guess somehow he was, and I heard a motor going, I guess it somehow sealed the pack. Is that uh-huh. safe to do, and what, what's good and bad about that? I was skeptical, well, but I didn't well, say anything because I didn't know much about it, and I didn't know what to tell him. 
Well, my, my understanding of what he is doing is he's just removing as much of the oxygen as he possibly can. And, and air is one of the things that does cause food to go bad. Um, I'm by no means a, sci- a scientist that can tell you, you know, the, the things that are, are good and bad. I can tell you why I wouldn't do that. Um, and my, the first reason that I would not do that is when uh, you vacuum seal something like that, it's trying to extract as much of the air in there out as it possibly can, but yet the machine can't tell the difference between air and liquid. And so as you're trying to, to vacuum seal what's left over of that meal, um, you're gonna make a mess because you're not only gonna get the air out, you're gonna get any kind of moisture that happens to be in the area is gonna come wicking out of the process as well. And it, uh, it, it, gets, to be, it gets to be a bit messy. And that's why we don't vacuum seal what we sous vide. I mean, if I was trying to vacuum seal a hamburger, I'd be, I'd be sucking, you know, some of the, the juice of the hamburger out through it and it'd just make a mess. You're and saying so that when you uh, seal these Mylar bags, yes. Mylar, I guess, I don't know what kind of a sealer, but that sealer that you're using knows the difference between pure oxygen and liquid. Therefore, it doesn't suck any liquid out. Well, I don't, I don't try it. When, you're, when I'm sealing these Mylar bags, I'm not sucking anything out of them. I'm throwing an oxygen absorbing packet into it and I close down the, the mylar bag as tight as I can to keep the content in there and leave a minimal amount of oxygen in the bag. And then it's heat sealed. Mm-hmm. I just lay the mylar bag across a, an, an iron for lack of a better term. And uh, the iron comes down and it melts the top of that bag to seal it closed. And the oxygen absorber inside there then sucks all of the oxygen in the container out and it sucks it down to where it feels like a brick because all of the oxygen has been absorbed. But I didn't have to vacuum seal it. I'm not sucking anything out of there. I'm just sealing the bag as tight as I can and letting the oxygen absorber remove the oxygen in there. Okay, so that oxygen absorber that you're talking about, and I know exactly what you're talking about, and I think most people do, uh, that obviously knows the difference between liquid and oxygen. Well, everything that I'm putting in there for freeze-drying has no liquid. Okay, yeah, that's true. But you're saying the vacuum sealer can sometimes suck out the li- some of the liquid as well as oxygen. Yes, Therefore, your food may not taste as good, let's say, three or four days later. It, well, but it could potentially have an effect on the taste. It also is going to be messy. Um And if you're only going to leave it in there for three or four days, you know, an average Tupperware dish will keep your food for three or four days just fine. Um, So I don't know. I don't know what advantage you're really gaining by vacuum sealing your leftovers. um, Well, he told me that it can last 10, 15, 20 days. And I don't know if that's true. I've never researched it, but I was skeptical. Well, I imagine if you're taking all the oxygen out that you probably could get a longer life out of it. Um, but I've never tried it. I just don't see, I don't see yeah. that being terribly advantageous to what I'm trying to accomplish. We don't overcook um, uh, our meals. We, we try to stay fairly close to what it is we're wanting to make. Because if I want to put something into storage, you know, that's a whole different mindset than what's left over from dinner. Yeah. So, you know, we may have a little bit left over from dinner, but we're not going to have, you know, anything that I'm going to be interested in trying to... Uh, you know, freeze dry or vacuum seal or, or, or store long-term. It'll be short-term storage only. And so I, I don't know. I, that's just my approach to it. Yeah. So maybe this question's irrelevant then to you, 
But I've also heard about people storing food and putting it in liquid nitrogen. I guess the thought behind that is liquid nitrogen freezes your food. And it's going to be, I guess my understanding of it is it's like a freezer, but your food's packed in liquid nitrogen. I don't know how you separate the two from each other. Do you know anything about that? Because I've heard of that being done. I've I've worked quite a bit uh, with cryogenics, but not for food. Um, So I don't, my experience with liquid nitrogen is anything that you put into liquid nitrogen um, let's take, for example, a, a, uh, a racquetball. Um, mm-hmm. you, you take an, and dip a, la- a racquetball into liquid nitrogen and uh, take it out and set it down and hit it with a hammer. It shatters like it's glass. Mm-hmm. Um, you let it sit on the counter for a couple of hours for it to thaw out, and it's going to go back to being a racquetball. Huh. It, it's, not going to, it's not going to change it in that sense. Um, it will freeze it. And, you know, whatever the rubber is in the, in the ball that's been frozen, you know, it may have a little bit of a, a chemical change that goes on there having been frozen. Liquid nitrogen, um, liquid nitrogen turns into a gas, and I think it's, it's an astronomical number. It's like a negative 327 degrees is where liquid nitrogen actually, uh, I take it back. That's where it converts from a gas back to liquid is a negative 327 degrees. Um, and so you're talking about something that is extremely cold. I believe it's the third coldest element that we're able to, we're able to work with. And so anything that's placed in there, you know, it just freezes all of the molecules and everything instantly because it's so, it's so cold. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know what that would do to food. Um, I've never, uh, I don't think I've ever seen or read or heard of anybody, successfully doing that. And on top of that, liquid nitrogen is terribly expensive. Um, yes. And not, you and, have to and, buy it at a special store in the, to begin with. And you have to have specialized equipment to even deal with it. I mean, how do you, you don't just take a bucket down to the liquid nitrogen store and buy a bucket of it. You know, how do you even yeah. store Now it? I know you people have- that used to buy it, but they, they had a thermos with them and they would fill up the thermos, but you, you could not screw the lid on all the way or it would explode. They had, I think they yes. filled it almost half, almost to the rim of the thermos, if I'm not mistaken. But I, right. I know that you could not, they couldn't screw the lid on tight. Yeah, you can't do that. Um, a regular water bottle, um, and, and, I've, and I've seen this, a regular water bottle with uh, maybe an inch of liquid nitrogen in the bottom of it. If you screw that lid on tight and put it underneath a five gallon bucket, when that ruptures, it will blow that bucket into shards. It's yeah. A, just like dry ice bombing. Yes. It is a pretty violent. Well, your expansion rate for, for liquid to gas on, on nitrogen is one to like 600. So yeah. one part, one part liquid will give you 600 parts gas. Um, and so when you, when you capture that into a water bottle and it starts warming up and expanding, when it ruptures, it's going to be pretty violent. And so it's really not something that, you know, the average Joe should be playing with. It, it could, first of all, if you were to get your hand into it to be burnt, you know, with liquid nitrogen is pretty bad. If you, now the interesting thing, if you drop a few drops of liquid nitrogen into the palm of your hand, um, it won't burn you. It'll actually just dance in the palm of your hand because it's expanding and heating up so fast that the liquid will push 
Oh, remember when we were kids, uh, the doctors would burn our warts off with liquid nitrogen. Remember that? Yes. Yeah. And we got nice blisters for about a week or two, didn't we? Absolutely. So I don't, I don't know of any applications with liquid nitrogen. Like I said, I played with advanced cryogenics and, and different, different reasons, but never anything related to food. Yeah. So okay. I, I would be pretty ignorant on that subject. I guess you could probably, you know, ask some more questions. I guess you could probably, if you were, if you knew what you were doing, I, I guess you could probably put liquid nitrogen in a cooler, in a bottle, uh, I don't, in a thermos or something, and have that freeze the thermos and then freeze your food if you knew what you were doing. Perhaps. Yeah, it'd, be an, it'd be an interesting process. I, I think that would require an awful lot of equipment that, yeah, of course, uh, you might as well do that in dry ice, and I have no idea yeah. how long dry ice lasts. Yeah, that would be that would be an interesting interesting test. But um, yeah. as far as feasibility for your average homeowner, and you know, in in America today, um, I think the reason freeze dryers have done so well is because it does give you the opportunity, and it's the quality of the food when it comes out. Yeah, um, the quality of the food is very good. Um, a lot of people that I have talked to that have a freeze dryer will freeze dry their leftover dinner and put it in food storage. Yeah. And, and the only, the only downside I see to that is that when I run a batch of stuff that I'm going to freeze dry, I want to fill all four of my trays. And like yeah. I say, if, it, if I'm cooking dinner, I'm going to cook enough to make sure that we're not hungry, but there's not going to be a ton of leftovers, not enough to warrant running a freeze drying batch. And that's just my world. Yeah. You know, that isn't, that isn't the way that I would handle it, but, one of the other things too, and, and this is true with everything that we have freeze-dried, and I might as well use Skittles as an example yep, um, because it, it makes as good an example of anything. Um, Skittles, before they go into the freeze-dryer, are fairly small and you know have a certain moisture content to them. You, you throw them in there, and I can do a batch of Skittles in about four hours. Um, they, they kind of blow up. Uh, they'll end up being twice the size they were before it started. And uh, it has absolutely no moisture in it at all. So it is crunchy. But what it does is it removes the moisture out of there, but it intensifies the flavor. Oh. And so it almost, it almost expands the flavor to where you're getting, by volume, each Skittle is less, but the amount of flavor that you're getting for that volume seems to be magnified. And I don't know if it just seems to be that way or if that's really happening. But a freeze-dried Skittle is absolutely delicious, and it has a very unique taste to it. And um, I like it far more than I do Skittles out of the bag. Freeze-dried Skittles are incredible. They are really good. Interesting. And there's a a number of foods that do that. I'll only do three candies is all that I'll do. I'll freeze-dry Skittles. um, I'll freeze-dry saltwater taffy. And I freeze-dry Bitto honey. I'll bet you Um, M&Ms would do the same thing, though, don't you think? Well, chocolate doesn't seem to freeze dry real well. I've had oh, really? uh, marginal success with chocolate because it has a, a certain oil content to it. And I'm really looking for foods that have more of a water content that I can extract because oil doesn't necessarily so like maybe freeze drying this uh, cookie dough ice cookie dough ice cream may not be a good idea. Well, we'll take a look. I've <laughs> freeze dried ice cream and have had great success with it. So I've got uh, some freeze dried ice cream sandwiches that are delicious. Oh, yeah. So. Um, you know, I, I don't know. It's worth giving it a shot and see what happens. Sure. Why not? <laughs> Absolutely. So. I could be your, your guinea pig. 
<laughs> well, you know what? If, uh, you know, shoot me your address and I will send you a box and I'll send you a little, uh, a little sample pack of a number of different things and you can give them a try and see what okay. you think. One of the, one of the things that I, I think is incredible freeze dried is avocados. Now avocados do not reconstitute very well. You try to put some water to them and they turn into a mushy gray mess. Um, but the avocados, uh, you can almost eat them like a potato chip. And again, you, oh, when they're free. So you don't want to reconstitute them, but you want to no. eat them the way that they are when they come out of the freeze dryer. Correct. Almost ah. like, like a potato chip. And I really like them just on a sandwich. I love because, avocados. I'll eat them yeah. plain. Yeah, I, I, I do as well. I love avocado. And so um, they, they look just like they do when you put them in the freeze dryer. They come out with the same green and yellow color to them. Um, they stay basically the same size. Uh, but again, the flavor is just intensified. And so avocados is a great one to, to freeze dry. And I'll put that on a sandwich. And it will suck a little bit of the moisture out of whatever you've got on the sandwich, the meat, the cheese, whatever. Um, but it doesn't try to completely reconstitute it. It stays crispy and uh, it's delicious. I love it. So Freeze let's talk about water. an issue that comes up when you draw, when you buy food from these companies like Daily Bread. Uh -huh. um, they salt, they are notorious for salting their food. Okay. That can be bad for people like my father who had high blood pressure when he was alive and really had to watch his salt. Of course, he had kidney problems too. That added to the issue. Uh, what do you do in a situation like that if you're buying a whole bunch of freeze-dried food from a company like Daily Bread or somewhere else that has high salt content? Is there a way to get rid of it? Or are there companies out there that don't put as much salt, if any, in the freeze-dried food? You know, I'm not familiar with buying freeze-dried food from companies because I freeze-dry all my own so I can control exactly what I've got going in there. But being yeah. familiar with the with the freeze drying process and reconstituting it, I think it would be a pretty tough task to reduce the sodium content in anything that you're reconstituting from being freeze dried. I think really the way you have to address that is that it has to have a reduced salt content before it goes in. Yeah, because I don't know that you're going to be able to extract it after it comes out. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about. Uh... Let's talk about missionaries. How can, and I'm actually, just as I've done the research here on questions to ask you about food storage, I'm kind of surprised that mission presidents don't freeze dry a bunch of food and put it in the missionary's apartment. Of course, they'd probably eat it, thinking, yeah. you know, we're not going to have food storage. <laughs> but how would you encourage or how would you tell a missionary about food storage of course one of the disadvantages to that is they're sometimes in their apartment for only six weeks i was lucky enough to stay in an apartment for i don't know four months at a time i guess i was lucky yeah i i served a mission as well and i didn't spend an awful lot of time in any one place either um and moved around quite a bit i don't know <clears throat> from a missionary aspect I don't know that there's a lot of uh, real advantages uh, for the missionaries. I guess the, the one thing that would be a little bit more advantageous, um, I'm, I got transferred quite a bit. <coughs> Excuse me. I got transferred quite a bit in my mission and uh, 
for a majority of my mission, I rode a bicycle. And so one of the things that I did um, was I had a number 10 can of peanut butter. And I could fit that number 10 can of peanut butter between my bicycle when I put it in the bicycle box and got transferred. Um, <clears throat> oh, you're going to have to excuse me for just a second. <laughs> That's okay. While he's doing that, uh, yeah, my mission, it was the best to have things I could consume. I, I never even thought about food storage. So this is an interesting, good conversation to have. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that food storage would have been advantageous. And I stayed stateside. I went to the Tennessee Nashville mission. Yeah. And so. <laughs> I guess for me, I mean, we didn't know. I mean, the average person, I had no idea about freeze-dried food back in 1999 when I served my mission, 99 and 2000. Yeah. But I guess for me, now that we have all this knowledge, that, uh, that not, not that the knowledge was not available. Obviously, government agencies were using freeze-dried food, like NASA, and I'm sure the military, possibly the ATF, FBI, when they went out to go negotiate standoffs and read remote areas, they probably had freeze-dried food or something like that. But now that I guess my if I were to do it all over again and my parents were alive, I guess my mother could send me a whole bunch of freeze-dried food through the mail. That would probably work. And actually, it's been my experience. Uh, if I eat some of the freeze-dried food just the way it is, it tastes just as good the way it is as opposed to being reconstituted. So and, I, and guess I guess the parents could go that route. Yeah, and I guess that would be one advantage to, to the freeze-drying is that you know typically things that are mailed cost money by weight. So you wouldn't necessarily want to ship a <clears throat> a case of soup, you know, it, <laughs> it may cost you more to ship the case of soup than it would to give the kid the money and send him down to buy it. And so, you know, in the freeze drying process where you're reducing that weight, it may be a little more advantageous. Yeah. What so, about uh, someone <laughs> who's on a very tight budget uh, like me, very <laughs> fixed income, uh, not much money. Uh, how would you recommend somebody like me to store food other than having close friends that would be nice enough to give me their freeze-dried food every month or something to that effect, and I could store it in a closet somewhere? Yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure the best way. <clears throat> I apologize. Something has gone the wrong way here. Well, cough all you want. You can't spread the Delta virus through the through technology. Not yet. Uh, so I don't have to worry about catching the Delta virus. Yeah, I've already had that. I've been there, done <laughs> that. So I'm I'm over that one. Um, Did you use ivermectin? I I was uh, asymptomatic. Ah. And so I had uh, I had no symptoms of the virus whatsoever. The only reason I know that I had it was because working in a care center, I'm required to get tested twice a week. <laughs> oh, so did you have to quarantine yourself for 14 days? Well, I actually, I actually was able to just do it for 10 days because I had not been, because I was asymptomatic. If ah. I had displayed any symptoms, then yes, I would have been 14 days. Ah, okay. No, no fever, no loss of taste or smell, uh, nothing. I had absolutely nothing. So 
Okay. I, I did that. I did that back in the first of first of August. But you know, if if finances uh, are a bit of an issue, um, you know, it would be. I would have to say that this is a little bit more difficult process. Yeah. Um, food storage could be. Uh, it, nobody is giving it away. No. It's, nor it's should fairly, they. I mean, if if they don't want to, nor should they. Yeah. Um, you know, if you go down to buy powdered milk, it's it's more expensive than buying a gallon of milk by far. Um, even if you buy the twenty five, even if you buy the twenty five pound bag of powdered milk, which we did have in our in, in my first apartment, by the way, I don't know how it got there, but I was the only yeah. one using it. Yeah, it uh, powdered milk. We recently we recently uh, stored, uh, I think, two hundred pounds of of powdered milk, and. Um, and we use it quite a bit just because if their day comes that we need to use it, we want to not necessarily change the way that we eat. So we use our powdered milk um, and I think it tastes just fine, but I'm used to it. So, well, actually, if you follow the directions with exactness, powdered milk tastes almost the same as regular milk, a little weedy has an aftertaste, bit of a wheat aftertaste. Yeah. But not that much different. I, if you make it exactly how you how it says to on the pat on the package, you're fine. Trust me, I know from experience. Yeah, we drink quite a bit of it, and so um, yeah. But it's not. It's not. It is not economical. It's not cheap. It it is definitely a little bit more expensive. Way Did to it go. used to be cheaper than regular milk though? Because I heard back in the seventies and eighties, people would buy it who were on very tight budgets. You know, I'm not familiar with pricing back then. I'm not real sure. Oh, and so okay. I don't know. I don't know how it compares to today as far as uh, prices go. Because my mom said know, that right I had a lot of powdered milk. Uh, I pro- I'm guessing probably when my dad was out of work. Yeah. But I never noticed it. So she must have mixed it in with regular milk or something. Yeah. And we've, we've done that before, too. Like I said, we've had feast and famine years. And, you know, when uh, when it was a little bit leaner, you know, you buy a gallon of milk and and you mix up a gallon of powdered milk and you blend the two together and you got two gallons of milk. Yeah. And you know, the kids, the kids really ne- never knew the difference either. Um, and that's kind of the point of it, I guess, is, uh, you know, to, to make the, anything that you store, you want it to be something that you're willing to eat. Um, and we went a step farther. We don't just want to be willing to eat it. We want to enjoy eating it. Sure. And so, you know, our circumstances are such that, um, it is a little bit more of an expensive process to be freeze drying stuff. The original cost of the machine is is substantial. Um, they do make uh, a little bit cheaper versions of it. You can actually get into one for maybe about twenty seven hundred dollars, three thousand dollars, as opposed to the forty five hundred that I'm into mine. But I chose to buy an upgraded pump with mine, and so you know you can get into it a little bit less, but. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know of a real good way to, uh, uh, to store food on a budget. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know how to do that. Let's talk about uh, real quick before we get into water. That's an interesting topic right there, but let's, I want to talk about the old fashioned way of, you know, you used to go down to the store and buy a can of chili, kind of like what you were talking about. Maybe you'd buy four or five cans 
and rotate. Now, if I were to buy a can of chili, a can of corn, a can of peaches or whatever at the store, how long would it last before I couldn't use it anymore? Because I, I remember in college, I actually started building up some food storage underneath my bed. Uh-huh. And I probably had food in there. I, I remember taking out some a can of soup that was probably at least five or six years old. For that, yeah. Fortunately, I never got sick from it. I don't know if I was lucky, but yeah. I was heard. Don't I, Somebody told me, don't do that. Yeah, most of your canned foods are going to have uh, expiration dates on them. And, you know, again, I don't work for the FDA and I don't really know how how realistic that is. I know that we've had uh, certain products that are canned that we'll go far beyond the expiration date and the wife doesn't worry about it. Um, soup and chili and things of that nature, we tend, we tend to stick a little bit closer to the expiration dates. And like I say, if it's, if we find quite, we find a good buy on it and I'll buy quite a bit, um, you know, I'll just freeze dry whatever I don't use. So. Yeah. Cause it's a pain rotating, isn't it? Rotating your cans is a real pain. It, it, it can be if you, if you set up your food storage correctly, I shouldn't say correctly. I don't know if there's a right or wrong way. The way that we have our food storage set up, it goes in on one side and comes out the other. And so we can get to the front and back of all of our shelving and we load everything new in the back and we take all the old stuff out the front. And so um, if you have a system like that, it's not, it's oh, not yeah. an arduous task. It's not bad. Now let's talk about storing water because I have a major complaint. When you buy water from the store, even if you buy it in a glass bottle, which by the way, in my opinion, I think when you buy water in a glass bottle, it does taste better than in a plastic bottle. And I understand it's because the material and the plastic will seep through the water and those type but if you buy it at a health food store with glass it tastes really really good now maybe they're getting it from a purified spring i don't know but i know this i have a metal bottle and if i let the water sit in there for a day it tastes disgusting likewise if you store if you just buy bottled water from the store let it sit for a while, it's going to taste disgusting. So how do you store water long-term without it tasting disgusting? Yeah. You know, and I don't know that I I have the best answer for that because all of my water storage is in plastic and I've got quite a bit of it. Um, I have three, I have three containers that are all uh, the three containers combined basically give me a thousand gallons of water um, is what I have. And I use uh, bleach. I use bleach to purify the water and put it in there. How much but, bleach do you put in? Oh, I'd have to go back and see. It's uh, like a, it's like a teaspoon per gallon or something. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> it was several cups for the 300 plus gallon containers that I have. Oh, there's a formula for it out there and um, I'll rotate the water that I have, but for the most part, the water that I'm storing, I'm not storing it for drinking purposes. Um, If I choose to drink the water that's in there, I'm either mixing it with some kind of a a powdered substance to make a drink. 
uh, but to just drink straight water uh, is is not in my food storage plan. Oh, <laughs> because I think I agree with you. I think it would taste terrible. And yeah, so I although what I used to get water from a company and they would give me these, they would deliver me these five gallon uh, jugs. Now, I could leave those out for a long time and it wouldn't affect the taste. There must be some something in the plastic yeah. bottle, yeah, some chemical. But yeah, generally speaking, yeah. So I, I basically, you know, my approach to it is that everything that I'm going to drink out of my food storage containers, um, I'm basically making a tang out of it. You know, the old astronaut tang. I have powdered drink mixes that I'll add to it and make it very palatable. So it's either that or I'm cooking with it or I'm washing with it, in which case I don't necessarily care about the taste too much. If I'm going to boil it and I'm going to cook, you know, noodles or something else that I'm going to need water for, I have never noticed a difference in the water taste or an effective difference versus just pulling tap water. That's interesting, huh? Okay. Now, one thing that you could do, if you really wanted to, do you live near a lake or a reservoir, river? Quite a few. Well, what you could do is you could buy one of those Berkey water filters. This is not an advertisement. This is just you and me talking, just so the audience knows. This is not an advertisement. But you could buy one of those Berkey water filters and go down to the river, fill that up. I think it's the only problem with that is it takes 12 hours to filter down into the into the tank from the water jug. But you could buy, I guess you could buy one of those and hope that it works. Yeah. And I have I have a small water purification system that we've set up in anticipation of having to draw water from common water sources whether it be a river or a lake reservoir, whatever it may be. And, <clears throat> and this is something that uh, I picked up on through my work at the care center uh, because we have to be prepared for these type things. And so I have a water filtration system. I've got a, basically a 300 gallon bladder that I can fill. And then I run it through a filtration system and load it into two and a half gallon bottles afterwards. And we've had the two and a half gallons tested to make sure the contents of the water uh, were good. Um, we tested it where it came straight out of the river and we've tested it after it's been through the filtration system. And <clears throat> it does, you know, it does just fine. But again, it does take some time. Um, you know, the pump is basically 15 gallon a minute pump and you're talking 300 gallons, you're going to be there a while to get 300 gallons in there. And then on top of that, 300 gallons of water weighs approximately 2,500 pounds. And so you're going to have to be able to transport, you know, 2,500 pounds from down next to a stream or river or lake. And so there are some, uh, a few things that need to be considered when you're talking about, you know, extracting water from those places and filtering it. Um, but there are plenty of options out there. You could even build your own if you went to one of these home improvement stores. You could go to a Lowe's or to a, a Home Depot and find, you know, filtration products. I built a, I built a great filter with uh, filters from Home Depot and a pump from Harbor Freight. And um, it did a great job. Yeah. All right. Well, is there anything else that you want to cover? Well, there's a couple other things that I would just throw out there just for, um, uh, just in preparation and talking about preparation. Um, I mentioned that I thought it was threefold, 
But part of the physical preparation, my wife and I have done uh, three different kinds of physical preparations as well. Uh, we have our bags, which are our 72 hour kits, oh, okay. which, is which is just basically, it's a, it's a big duffel bag that I have. Uh, we go through it uh, twice a year, uh, one in the spring and one in the fall. And uh, we change out the clothing from winter clothing to summer clothing and make sure everything that we have in there is good. And so we have at the very, at the very basic, we have a 72 hour bag that if we were to grab it and run out the door with absolutely nothing else, we could survive for 72 hours and be just fine. It has water. It's got sterno. It's got, you know, things of that nature. I'd recommend so, a pocket radio in there too. Uh, we have, we have a radio that has batteries and it's got a crank on it. So I hate those. The they don't make those as good as they used to. I know what you're talking. I hate those. Yeah. Anyway, I, I do have, I have one of those and, and it's, it's part of that. <clears throat> then second to that, uh, we have a trailer and the trailer is, is loaded with about 60 days worth of provisions, including, um, tents and shovels and axes and a, a wood burning stove, a lot of charcoal, um, and things of that nature. So if necessary, uh, we could hook onto it with, uh, either her vehicle or mine and um, up the hill, we could go into the mountains and we could survive for 60 days. Uh, so that's another level of preparedness. And then here at our home, uh, you know, sheltering in place obviously is our best option. We have the most, the most resources here and everything else. And here at our home, uh, we could probably survive pretty, pretty comfortably without going to the store for at least, at least a year. Um, when we did our preparations for our house, we had children that lived here in town with us. Uh, we actually made all of our preparations for 12 people, seven adults and five children. And uh, as it stands right now, most of my family has moved out and it's just the wife and I, and we are, we had enough food for 12 people for a year. Wow. And so we are, we are uh, freeze drying as much of it as we possibly can. And we're also donating it to food banks and to other places so that it gets back into the community because we were um, we were preparing for 12 people and now there's two of us. So, um, okay. Maybe uh, on the next podcast I have you on, we can talk about uh, gardening or hydroponics or what do you do when there's a disaster and you need to communicate with someone clear across the country? Yes. Um, I'm a ham radio operator. So am I. 7 pqq So, okay. Um, that was uh, that was my answer to that preparation was to become a ham radio operator and learn how to, you know, bounce messages off the ionic atmosphere and get them halfway around the world. Yeah. So. All right. Was, well, uh, anything else you want to touch? Uh, anything before think, we end the podcast? I think we've covered a, a broad spectrum of things. Um, uh, some of it a little more, a little more in depth, and some of it a little more general. Yeah. Um, and I would uh, certainly, certainly be willing to come back and share anything else that I have. By the um, way, one more question uh, that I ask sure. all the guests, since uh, this is an LDS Light podcast, I may not be asking you this on the new podcast, right. but what is your favorite part of being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Well, I would, I would have to say without question, um, it's got to be the plan of salvation. Yeah, uh, it, it, it tells me three things where I came from, why I'm here and where I'm going when this life is over, which without a doubt gives, gives me meaning to this life. It, it makes, it makes sense to me as to why I'm here 
and the different challenges that I'm going through and where I'll be going when this life is over and where I came from. I mean, those are the three questions. And all of that to me makes perfect clarity. And I've got, I've got children who've decided to, to follow other denominations and do other things. <clears throat> and they just simply don't have answers to that question. Where did we come from? Why are we here? And where are we going when this life is over? Which is the plan of salvation? And boy, that brings me a tremendous amount of comfort. Yeah. Well, uh, well, if you don't mind, uh, go ahead. Uh, if, if you can, uh, stay with me here as I end the podcast, because I do want to talk to you about something. In the meantime, okay. folks, I, I will uh, give you more information about where to find my new podcast when it officially launches. Um, I was actually supposed to launch it last week, but I'm trying to wait for someone to come on who I would really like to debut my podcast with. Uh, but if I can't get her on, I'll get a few other people on next week. In the meantime, I will talk to you all later, folks. Thank you for listening to the LDS Life Podcast. If you want to make a suggestion, comment, or to recommend a guest, email Kevin Williams at kevinw at ldslifepodcast.com. Be sure to check out his Facebook page, LDS Life Podcast.